Welcome to the Football Education Academy's podcast, a podcast aimed specifically at students and young people. Today we're joined by Reggie Nelson. Reggie has an inspirational story. From being brought up on an East London council estate, to knocking on the doors of the wealthiest street in London, achieving a degree and now working in the corporate financial sector. Let's get into the podcast and we hope you enjoy. Reggie, thanks very much for joining us on the Football Education Academy podcast. How are you? I'm well, not too bad. All no, well. thanks, thanks, thanks for joining us. I think, firstly, I've used your story when it got sort of flashed in the, in the media in 2018 so many times uh, to, ask, to our students, because uh, I think it's a great example. But for those listeners that, that are not aware um, of the knocking on door story, would you just sort of start with that? Because uh, I think it's a, a, a great start for us. <laughs> yeah, sure thing. Um, so... Back in, so I do like a whistle-stop tour. Um, I grew up in East London on a council estate um, and growing up was quite difficult. So my parents struggled with alcohol quite a bit and I grew up with two alcoholic parents and um, my dad unfortunately passed away when I was 17 years old um, because of the alcohol. But before that, because there wasn't the greatest stability at home, you sort of get sidetracked by the things that you see in your immediate environment, particularly on the council estate. So I used to look up to the older guys in my estate because I didn't have that sort of male role model at home. And that sort of led me and a few of my friends to just get involved in petty bits of trouble. You know, I got excluded from school and I was going down a completely wrong path, right? But I think when, when I was 16, I just decided to take football a bit more seriously. And I was outside of London a lot of the time anyway. So I was traveling from London to Woking. And um, halfway through that, when my dad passed away when I was 17, I just decided that I didn't want to play football anymore. And I just needed something that was a bit more sort of long-term, something that was stable and something that would help me to generate, I guess, wealth and a better life for myself and my family. And um, that's when I decided to go and knock on people's doors. Because <laughs> um, I didn't really focus much on education. I wasn't the brightest kid in school. I thought, what ways can I amass wealth? So um, I went to ask the rich how they got rich and started knocking on people's doors. And long story short, I met a senior director for a senior director that worked at the largest asset management firm in the world. And he invited me into his house on that day, talked to me for about an hour, invited me to the firm for an insight day a couple of weeks later. From the insight day, I did a week-long work experience that summer or summer 2014 and then from there I was encouraged to go to university so I did studied economics and learned Mandarin alongside my degree did the three years of university um, graduated in 2017 and I've been working in finance ever since so that's like a whistle-stop tour and I'm sure we're going to dive into a bit more of it but yeah just to give you like a high level um, yeah. of the fantastic but so when you were sitting there that day in college and, you know, you're, you're, you're thinking of something to, to come out of your comfort zone and do something differently to create something for yourself, to create, a, a, you know, your future life as such, yeah. where did the idea come from that you were going to research the wealthiest street in London and start knocking on the doors? Do you know what it is? For me, there's, there's two things that played a part in that decision. Number one was my faith plays a big part in it. Um, and it was just something that I was just praying about and just asking for like direction about. And number two was just knowing that if I wanted to, 
create a better life for myself, then I needed to do something different. And I just kept asking myself the question, how do rich people become rich? And it was a question that was just pondering in my head for a very long time. And I remember I was watching a TV show. My sister was watching a TV show, in fact. And um, it was by Joan Rivers. Um, and it was called How'd You Get So Rich? She essentially goes like, it's, it's a comedy show. And she goes to America and she's asking like people in Lamborghinis and um, people that have like, really big assets, you know, what did you do to come rich? And they, it was like, it's a jokey sort of episode. But for me, I saw that and I was like, oh, this is really, really tangible. So it's almost like what I was almost like praying for was like, that was in front of me there. And I said, you know what? I need to go and ask someone how they did this, but from a practical standpoint. And it took a bit, it took a while because at the time I was like, this is a stupid idea. I'm not going to do it. And I was pondering on the idea for about a good five, six months. And I was like, this idea isn't leaving my head. So I just need to act on it. I need to do something. And if I, if I do it and nothing happens, then at least I tried it and I can't beat myself up for it. So I did it. And fortunately it was like the gateway to, yeah, change my life forever, essentially. But in terms of how many doors did you actually have to, to knock on? Did you have anyone sort of just pretty much slam the door in your face or, you know, how, what was the sort of setbacks <laughs> along that journey? <laughs> so I was in, I was in the area for about three hours, all in all. Um, so I didn't start knocking the doors immediately. I went, so I, I went from East London to Gloucester Road. And when I came out the station, it was like a new world to me. You know, you just see like Range Rovers, Aston Martins. I'm a, I'm a car fan, right? So I, I knew all the cars that I was looking at. And at first I was asking random people on the streets how they became wealthy, right? So I'll, I'll stop someone on the street and say, oh, do you live in this area? You know, if they said, yeah, then I'll be like, oh, what did you do to be able to live in here? What skills and qualities do you have so that I can just extrapolate that and use it for myself? And as you can imagine, no one's really stopping to talk to me because I didn't go there in like shirt, trousers and shoes. I, I wore black jeans, black trainers, a parka jacket. I didn't own any smartwear, right? I was just casual clothing. So sitting down and thinking about it now, I, I, I know why a lot of people didn't stop to talk to me because it is quite strange. So because I didn't get the reception I was looking for when I was talking to people directly, I went to like the different hotels in the area in Chelsea, asking like the concierge. Um, the concierge what type of people stayed in, in those buildings and they all say oh you know, a few celebrities a couple um, they said celebrities I think they said like a couple bankers and something else but you know that wasn't really the tangible response I wanted because I wanted to know what skills they had I didn't really want to know you know what type of people lived there right I wanted to know what skills these people had and I wanted to meet someone that lived in or that was staying in that hotel so I can answer the question but I didn't get a chance to do that so when I exploited the option of talking to people on the streets I went to the hotels I didn't really get what I was looking for there that's when I decided to knock on doors and I must have not I, I don't know how many doors I knocked on but I, I just went down a few streets knocking on people's doors people told me to go away one person thought I was going to rob him um you know a lot of the houses um the people that were living there weren't in because they had like housekeepers in there so they'll say i'll oh, come back in a couple of hours and the person might be in them so i wasn't again i wasn't getting the responses that I, I, I wanted but then i knocked on elizabeth price's door and that's when yeah things things changed for me so i think a massive thing that jumps out for me there is you, you you've come out your comfort zone there so like you said it actually took you sort of five six months to to, to act upon the idea but you, to you know to to get that different result, you've really sort of stepped out your your comfort zone there. Um, yeah. Do you think that? Do you feel that that's important if you you really want to achieve in life? Hundred percent. Um, I feel like growth can't come if you're in your comfort zone, and that's something that I've had to adapt throughout my whole 
I say career, but throughout my whole journey, right, I, I've always had to come out my comfort zone to see things different. And I think for me, my coming out of my comfort zone is so crucial because where I'm from, visibility is so slim to anything else. So around here, you know, you, you, you get people telling you that you can even be a footballer, uh, a musician, or unfortunately, a root of crime, right? Those are the three prominent options for you. And I, I tried the football route initially, and, you know, I didn't, unfortunately didn't get to where I wanted to get to. Music wasn't really a viable option for me. And, you know, I, I knew I wasn't going to become a criminal, right? So when you exploit all those three options, you almost have nothing else to, to aspire to. So knowing that I didn't want to go down the conventional routes that a lot of the people around here go down, I knew that I had to come up my comfort zone to do something. And at the time, I didn't know what I was looking for. I didn't know that I wanted to go into finance. I didn't know what I was um, pursuing when I went to Gloucester Road and I was asking people. I just wanted to know what skills people had. So in my head, it was like I wanted someone to tell me, you know, okay, Reggie, I was hardworking. I read this book. I did this, 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 so that I can go back to East London do exactly what they did and hopefully in, in times to come be as successful as them because if they use the formula and it worked for them, then I can use that same formula and it should work for me. So I think coming at your comfort zone, for me, is one of the biggest things that I had to do in order to get to where I am today. I think you say make some excellent points there. We speak a lot to our students about they don't need to know what they want to be at the age of 16. There's not many people who are dead certain at 16 I want to do this and when you speak to them at 40 years of age they've spent their whole time doing that it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's unlikely that a journey looks like that however there's key things you, you can do between the ages of 16 19 and older but that's just sort of talking where our program is yeah. uh, and key traits that you can develop that then align to all industries and being successful in, in all different types of industries so I think that, that that's, that's excellent that you're sort of backing that up with, with, with what you're saying so the day you knocked on uh, Quinton Eliz Elizabeth Price's door, you know, your, your life took a, took a new turn, really. So just sort of give us a little bit of an insight to that when you did knock on the door and she opened it. Yeah, so she was one of the sort of last doors that I knocked on. And I remember their house, when you knock on the door, it's like this telecom thing and there's a camera. So they can see who's at the door before they even open the door, right? So I've pressed the intercom and they're talking throughout through like this mic and they're like, Oh, how can I help? And I said, Oh, my name's Reggie. I'm from East London. I just want to know what skills you had to be able to live in this area. Right. And, um, she asked me initially if it was a part of a school project. And I said, no, I'm doing it off my own back. You know, I ain't by myself. So she came, she came to the door and invited me into the house. And for me, that was the first surprise because I'm a complete stranger. Right. And she invited me into her, you know, a multi-million pound house. And she doesn't know who I am. And for me, that was like, wow, okay, this is a first step to something. I don't know what it is, but it's a first step, right? And I walk into the house and I'm looking around. I'm like, this just looks so expensive. I don't even want to touch anything. I don't even want to sit down. It's, it's, it's all quite surreal. And when, when I went into the house, I sat down and we were talking for about five minutes. And then her husband walked in. His name was Quinton Price. And... Quinton has this like gravitas about him. I don't know what it is, but when he walks into a room, he just, he bewitches any room that he walks into, right? So when he walks in, you just felt his aura. And he's not like a, a big man or anything like that, but he, he's just the most heartwarming person I've ever met in my life. And when he sat me down, we were talking for about an hour and he was, I was, I was telling him everything that happened in my life, you know, my upbringing, my environments, what it's like growing up, where I grew up, 
at the time I had lost two or three of my friends to knife and gun crime. So I was expressing to him like the challenges that someone like me in my environment has to go through, right? Going from, it's like when you were younger, going from school to your house without facing any altercation was a good day. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes you go from school to home and you know, your friend will come to school the next day and be like, oh yeah, I got robbed. And it's such a casual conversation. Oh yeah, I got robbed yesterday. And those are the things that I just tried to explain to him that I wanted to get away from that. And if I did have kids of my own, I didn't want them to face all of that stuff. So I was expressing everything to him about football, family, what I wanted to do. And in the conversation, he told me that, you know, he told me what he worked as. And he said, you know, I work in finance and I work for a company called BlackRock. And that's when he invited me to BlackRock, just for an insight day. Um, there was this thing at BlackRock called, um, well, they call it an insight day, but it's for undergraduates to come into the company to see what it's like. So you spend a whole day in BlackRock. You have to apply to do it. And the caliber of students that get onto that insight day are, you know, one, one of, like, they're some of the best students across a, a range of different universities, like Oxford, Cambridge, Durham, LSE, Warwick. Um, like the sort of Russell Group universities are what they typically recruit from. So I was a college student, right? And I went there not knowing anything. I remember going there, my tie was so short. Um, I had the, you know, like the Nike side pouch. You know, I yeah. went there with a the Nike yeah. side pouch. And, um, I'm turning off and I, I have no idea what's going on. And you can, you can tell I don't really belong in that room, right? But it was a day that I will never forget because that was a day that I... I um, that was the day I opened my eyes to the world of finance. And that was a day that showed me that if I wanted to do something else, aside from the three options that my society provided me with, then I could do it. So that's how I got my initial foot in the finance world. And, and how important do you think, you know, having positive, because you, you talked about the types of role models that you'd be surrounded by in East London. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, people do look up to these people that are sort of top of the top of the, the, the gantry, the, the, the knife crimes, et cetera. Yeah. So how important is having that positive mentor, which, you know, I'm assuming Quinton sort of ended up being that, that mentor for you. Yeah. How pivotal has his role been within your life today? Massive. Um, I always say he's the reason why I am, why I am today. And if it wasn't for him, I honestly wouldn't be where I am today. He, I, I did a TED talk, I think it was last year, and I, I, I labeled it the power of mentoring. And there were three things I touched on that mentoring provides, which is visibility, guidance, and hope. And visibility, what, with, with visibility, what Quinton did was he showed me what was available for me if I worked hard at it, because I didn't know what finance was. I didn't know what corporate, um, like, corporate finance was or consulting or anything like this. I live about 25 minutes from Canary Wharf, and I'd never been to Canary Wharf before that. I live 30 minutes from the city of London and I never stepped foot in the city, right? And for me, he provided me with that visibility to see what was available, right? That's the first thing that he provided me with. The second thing was guidance. So once I knew what was available, he gave me the guidance into how to get there. So he encouraged me to go to university. He encouraged me to study something finance related if I did want to go into that finance environment. My first exam at university, I got 25%, which is a fail. It's like a, it's like a U essentially and I was like yeah university is a steep learning curve I'm, I, I, I actually wanted to leave university because I thought it just wasn't for me but Quinton just kept giving me that guidance and the next exam after that I remember scoring 82 percent and then exam after that scored 84 percent so with his guidance it's almost like 
I could essentially do anything. And it's, it sounds very cliche, you know, or quote unquote, anything is possible, but it genuinely is. And I think having that mentor really provided me with that sense of I can do anything if I set my mind to it. So having that visibility and having that guidance, it honestly just gave me hope and hope that I could have a better life for myself, have a better life for my family. And if I did have kids, and I always say this, if I did have kids, I just don't want them to go through what I went through and just have a better, like a better life. Do you know what I mean? Like, I give this example, of, and I'll never forget this. When um, when I was younger, my I remember my washing machine breaking, and it's like when when something as big as a washing machine breaks, it's game over. Because how are you gonna how are you gonna afford another one? So, I mean, we didn't have money to afford another one. So you even make do. And I remember my mum washing clothes in the bathroom, right? Because we were she was saving for a new washing machine, and the little things like being able to like if the washing machine breaks, okay here mum take this go buy another one tomorrow it's these little things that for me are so invaluable and so intangible that having the life that I have now essentially helps me to do those things like my mum went on her first holiday not not like a couple no not too long ago and she went Israel and that's the first time she's been away from England and um Ghana where my mum's originally from that's the only two countries she goes to now she can just go on holiday it's these little things that having a mentor has allowed me to sort of pursue right and I'm thankful for Quinton because he's almost like my father figure today. We're still in touch today. Um, we, we go to events together. We um, hold events together. We do talks together. Um, you know, he gives me, he's a season ticket holder at Chelsea. You know, he gives me season, like he's ticket to go watch a Chelsea game with a friend. Like he's, he's the biggest role model I have in my life today. And without him, honestly, I wouldn't be where I am today. So. No, uh, that's a, that's, that's a long answer. Sorry. But yeah. that's, that's spot on. It's really powerful. And I, I really like those those three words you use there, visibility, guidance and hope. And I think that that's the purpose of getting guests like yourself on and some of the other guests that we spoke to is sometimes you, you, you think that your, your worth is only what you see around you and, and your aspirations are based on what you see daily within your, within your sort of two-mile radius around, around your house. And like yeah. you said, you, you were 20 minutes from Canary Wharf in the city of London, yeah. yet you didn't even think that was a tangible route for somebody like yourself. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you went through a football program similar to what our students are at Woken FC and then suddenly you, you, you're coming out of, of university. Um, so just, just give us an insight in, in, into uni. You said you struggled on that, on that first exam, but getting yeah. through uni and that satisfaction and overcoming those setbacks, how did that feel to, to come out with that degree? Yeah, that was, that was one of the biggest milestones for me. The fact, because, because <laughs> I've got an older sister, right? And she's always been the academic. She always knew that after after college, she was going to go to university and she was going to go down that route. And I remember when we was growing up, I would say, I'm never, ever, ever going to university. Never going to university because I, I didn't really like school, didn't like college. It, studying wasn't my, wasn't for me. I, I just thought when I was younger, right? So university was never a viable option. So when I did that first exam, I scored 25%. I almost proved myself right in a negative way because I said I knew it. I knew I wasn't good enough. I knew it wasn't bright enough. I knew that I wasn't going to um, sort of complete this, right? That, that's what I kept saying to myself. But I think you almost remind yourself why you started on this journey anyway, right? I, I, I went to knock on doors because I wanted guidance into what I needed to do to become you know, successful or more successful than I was back then. And if university was part of that journey, then I just had to suck it up and just work insanely hard. And for me, I just, whatever I was doing, I times it by 10. You know, I was in the library. I was getting the textbooks. 
I borrowed my my friend's library card um, and went to his because there's a university closer to me, and I went to that university to study there. And I was in there every single day, just studying, reading, highlighting, practicing. You know, I I would do all the things I needed to do so that in that next exam, if I did you know, fail, for example, then I knew I knew in myself that look, I had genuinely tried everything, and maybe it just isn't for me. But I wouldn't know that if I didn't give it my all. So I did, and that's when I got eighty-two percent. And after that, eighty-five percent. And after that, it was just first classes, and I kept getting like A's and B's and A's and B's and I found my I found myself academically and I realized it was just a trick to myself. Like, oh, if you remember what's in a textbook, they call you a genius. And I just said, Oh, let me just keep remembering what is in this textbook. I just had to study even more, right? And you know, graduating in 2017 with my mum and my sister there, it was like it was priceless. Um I think that was the moment when I realized anything you do set your mind on, you can do it. That was a three-year journey. And even within those three years. I did like a plethora of internships at various different firms. Right? I, did, I think I did five, four or five internships and having one internship is good. Having two internships is great. And for me from the council state in East London to go out and get four or five internships throughout three years of university was again, another achievement for me. So finishing university again was, yeah, definitely, definitely a big milestone for me. I think, uh, you know, that, that, that was a couple of key things that you said there is just overcoming those setbacks and essentially there is no replacement for that for that hard work um you know it, it, no matter how hard you found it you just continued and continued and continued to work hard and it's yeah. great when, when you do read your story on the newspaper article and for somebody that doesn't delve it you see the end you know you read it now it's a lad he, from east london he knocked on the door he got a job he got a degree and then suddenly you are where you are now what people yeah. out and what's great to actually get you on is people miss out the detail and in the football world is the same you see a player make their debut at 19 and score a goal and he's the next wonder kid but they actually miss out the 19 years of hard work that's gone into him making that that that, that, that debut so I think you're, yeah. you're like some, some some amazing stuff there around that around that hard work one thing I do want to touch touch upon and I actually watched an interview with, with, with Quinton and he said the minorities have to work harder yeah due to the prejudice and ignorance of others. Yeah. Um, I found that quite a, quite a poignant thing as a, as a, as a young black man in, in, in the financial and corporate sector. Yeah. Um, you know, w- w- there's a lot at the moment with, with Black Lives Matter and, 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 yeah. and, and I, f- I still find it, you know, I think we all do quite sad that there's still that conscious or subconscious prejudice going on. So, yeah. You know, just give us your thoughts on that of, of you know of a young black man that's in that um, industry at the moment and on, on the challenges that that you feel yeah. you may have, you are facing or have faced. Yeah, I think what the, the when I first went into the corporate space, that's the first thing I realised. A question I asked myself, which I didn't have the courage to ask anyone else, was why is there no why is there no one that looks like me here? That was when I I had my short tie, and that was when I. I went in there with my Nike pouch and I'm sitting there and I, I realized there and then that everyone I looked at doesn't look like me. And at the time, you don't, I didn't understand it at the time. And when I, when I went to university and I did a few more internships and I had Quinton to guide me and I had another guy called Nathan Higgins, who again, I'm still in touch with today. Um, Nathan more so was able to teach me that there is a big ethnic disparity issue within the corporate sector. So he was able to give me the heads up, like, hey, by the way, 
you might face this, you might face this and stuff. And I was quite prepared going in because Nathan had taught me that. But there is a, there is a big ethnic disparity in the city. And I think with lack of education can lead to ignorance. And that can lead to us needing to work harder. For example, when, on my first day of one of my internships, and I won't say what firm it was for, I remember I, I, um, I was doing a rounds of introduction because it was my first day on the desk and this guy was taking me to the different people in my team to say, oh yeah, by the way, this is our intent, Reggie's going to be with us for X, Y, Z weeks. And one of the senior, one of the senior directors there, I'm still in touch with him today. He's, 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 a, really, he's a really nice person. But he said, um, oh, you know, like just introduce yourself. And I, before I could even say like who I was, he goes, oh no, can you wrap it for me? And I, 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 I was standing there and I said, I didn't say, I think I just laughed it off. But at the time I was like, why, why is this guy asking me to rap for him? Like what, what of me does he think that I'm a rapper, right? And I think it's, those, it's that sort of lack of education that again, like I said, can lead to ignorance. And you almost have this um, task on your shoulders to represent the people that look like you because there, cause there aren't many people in the city i'm all, almost tasked with showing the people that i'm working with that look what you see in the news of young black people um killing each other and doing this and doing that the negative stereotypes and the negative representations that's not that's not that's not the true or grand picture right and if you look at me it's almost like they're looking at me to prove them wrong so if I, if I slip up, for example, say like, oh, I get angry one day in, in, in a meeting, I'm now, then they might now see it as, oh, all young black people are angry because I am their only metric to that, right? Someone said this to me before, and I think it's so true. They said, the people that I work with, sometimes I'm the only black person that they'll like, encounter. Because when they go to work, majority of people look like them. When in their neighborhood, you know, a lot of the people look like them, they're probably you know, white. Just use white, for example, right? So I'm the only black person that they are going to encounter. So I have to give off this representation that a lot of young black people are not like what you see in the news, but they can be smart, they can be diligent, they can be tenacious, they can be hardworking, they can be driven. And if there's ever a day where I don't manifest those qualities, then I don't only reflect on myself as Reggie, I reflect on everyone else in my state that is trying to get into where I am today. So what Quinton said in regard to us needing to work harder as a minority it is true because of the lack of representation you do almost carry more weight on your shoulders to prove to those that you're working around that not everyone is what you see in the news but there are people that can do what you're doing and you know your skin color shouldn't um sort of define what uh, or how you can do something so yeah it's interesting you mentioned intelligence there because um, there was a study by a, a Danish company on, on English commentary. Yeah. 63.3% of criticism from commentators um, to, to uh, players of darker colour skin was on their intelligence. So I, I, I think that it, it's important that the language we use, and this is for everybody because this then is, is where the sub subconscious of, of the white privilege comes in. You know, yeah. Um, 14% of our population is made up of, of BAME and for listeners that don't know black Asian and minority eth ethnic so if that is that 14% represented within these companies and I actually spoke to a friend obviously I can't mention the, the, the company yeah, yeah, yeah. and out of interest I said I asked it's a big corporate company how many in senior management roles would fit into that category of, 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 of the BAME none mm. 
So what, what do you think would need to be done for that to change over a period of time? There's the long-term route and there's a the short-term route. I think short-term route, there are things like quotas that can be put in place. And I think quotas are quite extreme because it does... So one can argue that you know, nepotism is never the way forward. And I do agree. However, quotas are a way to almost radicalise change. Right? We've seen quotas in gender in the corporate sector. You know, Some institutions have had 50-50 by XYZ, which is to have a 50-50 split in gender on boards or 50-50 split in gender in senior management. They've had 70-30 to have a 70% ratio between senior leaders in their organisation. So they've had quotas for gender, and I feel like having quotas for ethnicity will help to enhance that that route to diversity, that route to um, cognitive diversity. Because a lot of the people, or a lot of organisations, they want that diversity because of diversity for, and there's tons of studies out there to prove that the more diverse your workforce is, the better the results you have because of the span of different ideas that you can you can tap into. So I think in order to radicalise that change and speed it up. One way to do it is definitely through things like quotas to ensure that, you know, you're not promoting someone because of their colour. You're promoting them because they can do the work and their colour will help to bring a different sense of thought, a different sense of um, culture, of understanding, simply because of the background, right? <clears throat> so I think number one in terms of the short term will be having things like quotas in place. Long term, from a grassroots level, how firms recruit, I still think is pretty flawed. And what I mean by that is, you know, a lot of the institutions that I've either had the privilege of interning at or that I work with, they recruit from the same pool of candidates. Meaning, if you go to, say, Oxford, Cambridge, LSE, Durham, Warwick, you are an idle candidate. And they recruit from these pools of university, but then say that they want, you know, they want more diversity. And I just feel like you can't recruit from that pool constantly and say that you want more diversity because if you look at um, students from Oscar universities black students make up four percent right so you're trying to enhance your diversity by looking in a pool where there is the least representation there and i'm not saying that recruiting from black um Roscoe universities is wrong no you know there are bright candidates there but what i'm saying is there is talent all across the country there's talent up and down the country and the people or the students that are in sort of other universities in the country are never getting a look in just because of the institution that they go to. And I think that's completely wrong. For example, I went to Kingston University, which is not a Rush Group University. And in my three years of university, we didn't have one FTSE 100 company. FTSE 100 is like um, top 100 company um, in the UK come to our university and say, hey, we hire people like you, right? It was sort of a local accountancy firm or one of the smaller firms that came and and held their career talks. And that's completely fine. But if you're aspiring to work for a multinational, if you're aspiring to work for a big corporation, from my standpoint or from our standpoint as, as students at Kingston, it's like, oh, they don't hire people like us. And it's those universities that take on a wider range of diversity anyway. So if firms want to enhance that representation, then they need to start looking at where they're recruiting from. If you've got recruiting from the same pool of students and you want different results, then I think Einstein said it. That said it best. You know, that's 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 flawed, right? It doesn't it doesn't really make sense. So, from a grassroots level, focus on well, look at where you're recruiting from because there is talent up and down the country. And in terms of rapid change, I genuinely believe that quotas are a good place to start because it does make you think 
strategically of how you can do this, how you can change things um, for now in order to get that long-term change so that it almost flows by itself as opposed to trying to put things in place in order to enhance diversity. No, fantastic. Some, some stuff that I, I really, uh, really agree with. And I think what you've, what you've done today is just really give uh, listeners, regardless, regardless of ethnicity, religion or gender, the understanding that, you know, that aside, they can go and achieve if they put their mind to it. But one yeah. question, one last question that we, we do answer, I know you're on a busy schedule today, is <laughs> no worries, what, no worries. What, what one bit of advice would you give to our, our young people listening? Normally people ask for free, but I'll give one. Um, my best piece of advice would definitely be never take rejection as gospel. And what I mean by that is we're all going to face rejection. We're all going to face no's at some points in our lives. But it's those, those no's and those rejections can either break you or they can define you. And f- fortunately for me, they help to define me, right? If, if I was to list the list of rejections that I got, the list of no's that I got, be it when knocking on doors, be it in university, be it in my career, through, through, through my journey, I've received a lot of setbacks and a lot of no's, right? But for some reason or another, I've been able to use that as a stepping stone to get to where I am today. So I always like to use examples because I feel like it, it tells the story better. When I'm, I was in one of my internships, I unfortunately didn't get the... Um, you almost like get an offer to go back for um, the permanent role, essentially, so that you have a job after university. So you go into your last year of university, you're not needing to apply for anything because you already have a job. And unfortunately, I didn't get the offer um, for more reasons than one. But um, I remember when I didn't get the offer, I was heartbroken because that, you know, that was like the last step to becoming that first-generation wealth builder for my family. You know, that was like my career starts at that point. And I, I didn't make I didn't make I didn't make it then. But looking back on it, I'm grateful for that because if I didn't get that role, number one, I wouldn't be where I am today. And I genuinely enjoy and love the institution I work for today. And number two, it wouldn't have made me as hungry as I am today for the things that I want to achieve. Because of that rejection, I said to myself, you know what, I need to work harder, I need to smash it, and I need to develop myself even more so that the next place I go to, they can't reject me. And it's helped me to build myself and develop myself even more. And if you fast forward 18 months from that one rejection, within 18 months, I've received, I think it's 18 different job opportunities from various different firms up and down the country. So I went from one rejection to receiving 18 different offers, right? And in that span of 18 months, that was just me developing myself and becoming better. And other institutions were able to acknowledge that, right? So never take rejection as gospel. Never take no's as, 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 as something that can define you, right? Even if you don't see light at the end of the tunnel because of that one rejection just pick yourself up and go again and just re-strategize how can you become better what can you do to develop and once you find that out i promise you you will be able to get to that next step but if you let that know or that rejection define you then you know you're just going to take steps back and it's just going to be a lot harder to get to where you want to be so never let the nose define you and never take rejection as gospel amazing reggie thanks very much for joining us for giving up your time in in a busy schedule that you've got you said some really, really inspirational stuff and, and I can't thank you enough for our time so thank you very much my pleasure thank you thank you for listening to today's episode on the Football Education Academy's podcast should you wish to get in touch with us or any of our guests please look in the description 
where you can find all our contact details and social media platforms. Thank you.